So good morning, everybody. Welcome to a special edition of Environmental Social Justice. Today, we are doing a round table on electric energy and hydrogen energy. We have two specialists with us today. We have Waite Kwok, who is an energy executive with Renewable Electric Energy, and we have Keith Malone of the Fuel Cell California Fuel Cell Partnership. So welcome, Waite. I'm going to start with you. Tell us about solar, why it's important, and why people need to know more about it. Well, sure. Thanks, Wendy, for having me on your show with Keith here. And um, I'm dialing in from the San Francisco Bay Area. And um, I've been in the solar energy industry for a little bit over 10 years. And maybe I could just explain when people say, what's solar energy? Well, there are really two major types. One is uh, solar thermal. And the other one that I've been in is solar photovoltaic. The solar thermal ones uh, you're familiar with is, is what people put by their swimming pools to heat up their water. right? And um, that's been around for an awful long time. Uh, the solar photovoltaic actually generates electricity on your rooftops, and that's made with um, uh, the key ingredient, the magic ingredient is called silicon. And I actually have a little bit of a, a sample here of a chunk of, of, of silicon material. Silicon, it turns out, is the second most abundant material on our planet. Yes. Uh, that is after oxygen, which is about 49% of the Earth's mass. A silicon is about 28%. So it's abundant. And that's from an equitable and social justice piece. It's something I really like is that it's available all over the world, right? Yeah. Unlike oil, which is concentrated in certain parts of the world and makes those people really rich. The idea of having the, the core material all over and highly abundant, um, it, it's, it's really a benefit for environmental justice. And so anyways, uh, we, we go and get it and we have to purify it down to like 99.9999% pure. And this type of silicon is the same silicon in your computer chips or your cell phone chips, right? Silicon, um, but um, we, we can actually turn them into a solar panel. And the way we do that is actually to melt that chunk down, those chunks into like cubes like this, right? And this is like one of the building blocks. This is a, a melted down chunk of silicon that actually weighs 10 pounds. Wow. And uh, one of the interesting things about why solar energy is so cost effective today is because the price of the silicon has come down dramatically in just the, uh, the dozen years that I've been in the industry. So for example, this 10 pound block of silicon, if I bought it the year I entered the industry, it would have cost me $2,137, $2,137. But 10 years later, the price has come down so much because they've gotten so much more efficient at manufacturing it. They're expanding manufacturing all over the world that this thing came down to $36 last wow. year, right? So from 2100 to $36. And that's why as the most important ingredient in a photovoltaic solar panel, that prices of solar panels have come down uh, from $750 back in that day to $100 uh, today. It's, it's really done an amazing thing. So uh, that, that silicon brick that I showed you, we actually slice very, very, very micro thin uh, slices of the silicon so that this becomes a solar cell and we put some chemicals on it. And I don't know if your viewers can see some of the silver lines that um, yeah. are applied to there. And so that the, it's amazing when the sunshine hits this magic material, it excites the electrons within the silicon um, bulk and the electrons, you know, jump onto those silver metal lines and they they start moving. And the movement of electrons is 
electricity, right? And so that's how a photovoltaic solar cell, and photovoltaic is a fancy word of saying photo, light, voltaic, electricity. Uh, That's what a photovoltaic solar panel does. And a solar panel just consists of uh, many of these solar cells strung next to each other, either 60, about 60 of them are in a typical solar panel that we put up on a roof. So Anyways, I, for your listeners, I hope that's just a, a quick basic explanation of the difference between solar oh, yes. thermal and solar photovoltaic and the history of how these are made and why the prices come down so much and why it's such an exciting time now, just 10 years later, to be going solar and to power our homes, our cars and our, our businesses. And I love the fact that the cost has come down because most people for years thought, I can't afford this. It's too expensive. You know, it's not going to give me all the electricity I need. But now that with research, development, engineers, really smart people got together, figured out how to bring that cost down, make things more efficient, make things more effective. And actually now it is affordable to everyone, which is so very important for the entire world to understand, especially from a social justice aspect, that energy is not available to everyone everywhere. The sun shines, Get it, you can get a photovoltaic cell put it on a roof and it is accessible to everyone to have electricity. So now I'll introduce Keith to talk about hydrogen, which many people may not know too much about. We all know hydrogen gas, but with fuel cells, what does that mean and how is that important for our next generation of electricity? Well, I think Wei Tai hit a lot of similar issues, uh, especially with hydrogen. And I'm going to speak a little more broadly, but I think um, to add to the end of his, also going to scale, Hmm. you know, scaling up production has also had an effect. And for us in kind of this, I'll use the umbrella term of hydrogen and fuel cell kind of industries, we're in a place it feels like compared to early wind and solar that we're still at the beginning, although we've been making hydrogen around the globe for about 60, 70 years, but this is just kind of a new sort of use of it and a a kind of a a new, several new pathways using hydrogen. And so going to scale, that's an issue. And I I also want to indicate also hydrogen also has some really interesting geopolitical implications as well, because hydrogen's the most abundant element in the universe. Yes, it is. Of course, the challenge with it is it's always bonded to something else. But at the same time, it also begins to give a lot of countries and a lot of communities access uh, to to hydrogen in a way that, you know, petroleum doesn't. You know, um, uh, and you're welcome to follow up with questions, uh, Wendy. You can trigger me pretty easily. Um, I just do not trigger you. (laughs) But in a good way. In a, in, a, in a good way. And so, you know, we talk about the fact that with hydrogen, especially hydrogen as energy, not just as a vehicle fuel, um, countries are now able to maybe not necessarily achieve total energy independence, but you start to kind of see, we're beginning to see a different, we're seeing an interesting realignment of who's going to make hydrogen, who's going to be able to make most of it for themselves who are going to be big exporters um, and who are going to be kind of big importers. And so it's really kind of fascinating to watch um, just these kinds of early stages. It's still, I think, too early to fully predict and be with great certainty, but um, um, 
we're in a really interesting place right now. And the last year has really shown that with this sort of global acceleration of hydrogen policies, hydrogen, really more hydrogen stimulus packages, and we're just beginning to see the foundations of it. So that's kind of my large, maybe 100,000 foot level sort of view of things. And with the hydrogen fuel cell, you know, generally it's taking water, for example, splitting out the hydrogen that runs through the fuel cell, which makes electricity. And the off gas being water, which most people probably don't realize is, you know, the end result is you get water. That, that hydrogen's used up, electricity is created, and then out the tailpipe comes water, which is actually kind of cool to me. Now, one of the things we're all getting to this net zero energy issue together. Everyone's talking about trying to be carbon negative. And working together is pretty much, in my opinion, the only way we're going to do it. So now we're going to get into the more difficult conversation of the pros and cons of each. So, Wei Tai, I know that you converted your entire house to electricity. That would be such a daunting task to most people. They would not know how to do it or how to have the tools to do it. So explain why you did it and how you did it. Sure, sure. Well, um, you know, the... Uh, the city of Berkeley, California, uh, a couple of years ago, decided to ban natural gas in all new home construction or all new building construction because uh, the state of California in general has a goal to uh, dramatically reduce the amount of na- natural gas we use by 2030. That's just in a decade. And I said, wow, that sounds impossible. How are we going to, I use, I have a gas cooktop. I have a gas furnace to heat my home. I have a gas water heater to heat my water. And I have a gas fireplace, right? And my home was built in 2004. And I saw all of these uh, items go into my house. I said, that would be really expensive to take it out. That just seemed really impossible. And I'm even in the renewable energy industry. And I thought all of this was really difficult and impossible. But, you know, after I I was inspired to say, maybe it's let me look into seeing how difficult that really would be. And I started attending workshops and seminars and reading reports and discovered that, in fact, a lot all the technologies are electric technologies are there to replace the gas products I talked to you about. And it turns out that some that those electric technologies like heat pump um, are two or three hundred percent efficient, energy efficient compared to their gas counterparts. And so uh, the reports generally said that in new home construction, it's actually cheaper to go all electric than using a mixed fuel gas electric home, which is contrary to what we've been marketed over the last 30 years, right? We say, you know, we think gas is cheap and, uh, and so forth. But it turns out that uh, high efficiency heat pump electric is the way of the future. And, um, you know, one of the things I want to show you is just right over my shoulder here is a mini split heat pump unit, uh, which is used to both heat and cool my room. I used to have central air conditioning, right? Yeah. And heating. Everybody said, oh, you got central AC. That's the best. It's like, no, it's actually not the best. It's 1950s technology. And every time I travel to Asia, like Taiwan, Hong Kong, Japan, they have all of these things on their walls. And I, I was thinking like, well, they're probably not doing it because it's expensive, right? They're doing it because it's cheaper and better yes. and more modern. So they, they've sort of leapfrogged us there. And that gave me the confidence that, oh, these technologies are actually not that exotic. They're actually pretty um, standard. A heat pump, by the way, I've heard that word before, but I must admit, I didn't really know what it was or how it worked. <laughs> and so uh, I'll share my secret with you. What I learned is that a heat pump is actually just the same technology that's in our refrigerator. 
and a heat pump pumps the heat from inside the refrigerator outside. That's why if I stand there with my bare toes in front of the refrigerator, I feel warm air coming out because right. uh, the refrigerant being used to attract the warm air and extract it and cool the inside of the fridge, right? But there, because there's no combustion happening, there's just the movement of refrigerant, it's actually an extremely efficient process. And so if you apply that thinking to your whole house, you could remove the heat from inside your house, like now in the summertime, to cool the inside of your house by using heat pumps. And you can work that process in reverse in the winter and bring heat from outside into your house in the wintertime. Right. And it's all done at like 200 to 300% energy efficiency in California. And so um, I actually, yeah, to your question, I, I decided to challenge myself and see how much it would cost and how long it would take to get rid of all my appliances. And it, two years ago, it actually only took 45 days uh, from the time the contractors came in, they they took out all of those things that I talked about and they were done in 45 days. So it was actually way faster than I expected. Uh, it was a little more expensive than I hoped for, but there are more um, incentives coming down from the state of California now to incentivize this move because it's clearly a viable technology to remove fossil fuels from your home. And that's the end result is the fossil fuels. But I do have to ask a really hard question and I know you can handle this because you're an awesome guy. So lithium ion batteries, cobalt, these are strip mined batteries are, you know, they're not the greatest for the environment. Lithium is a rare element. We don't have a whole lot of it. And I know other technologies are moving forward. What do you have to say to people that are like, oh, electric is terrible. Electric is bad. We strip mine. What's your response to that when the naysayers come out? Okay, well, let's uh, first of all distinguish that um, the solar panels that I showed you and the examples that I gave you of a solar panel, these do not have any lithium in there. Uh, it's just batteries, right? Lithium ion batteries or, you know, in our cars, we had lead acid batteries. So there, it's basically different chemistries of batteries, which are meant to store electricity. Uh, so far, I've only talked about generating electricity and not storing it. Um, and in my particular house, I don't actually have a battery storage yet. Oh, um, okay. I might some day, but I do have a Nissan Leaf um, 2013 uh, all electric vehicle that does in fact have a big lithium ion battery in there, which is the common battery technology used today in pretty much all of the electric vehicles. And so uh, to your point, what you just mentioned, the, the, the main ingredient is, by the way, our cell phones use the same lithium ion yes. technology. Yes, our, our laptops use it. And, and since we're talking about chemistry, right, and hydrogen being the most abundant and silicon being, uh, well, lith uh, uh, um, lithium is on the table of elements very, very high up on there. And it's very, you know, the higher it is on the table of elements, the lighter it is. And yeah. so uh, for, for portability, uh, like cell phones, laptops, and even your car, you want a light battery. You don't want a lead acid battery, right? No, that's you're really not dragging that thing around. <laughs> yeah, that'd be heavy. So that's why the industry's moved to lithium because of its lightness, portability. It's a mature technology. And I believe, um, you know, a lot of it is, that's the bulk of it, but there is some cobalt, uh, which is more a rare uh, earth, and it's mined in, in parts of the world um, and historically has a challenged supply chain just in terms of the labor used to get it. So uh, one of the ingredients in the lithium-ion battery, cobalt, has been under intense scrutiny for, um, for its um, 
for, for its labor practices over the years. And it's something that uh, we need to clean up, we need to address. And it's a good thing that the end, end users are, are look, you know, raising that issue and pressing companies to address that. And um, uh, I'm not deep on that topic to know exactly where it is, but I think it is a known issue that needs to be improved and can be improved. Yes, and that's the whole point is the more we discuss things, the more people understand the knowledge is important. And then we can build our way across these, you know, hurdles that we run into. And my last question before I hop over to Keith, um, this has actually been questioned to me several times with a lot of the interviews I've done, is we had a lot of flex alerts recently because there wasn't elect enough electricity in the grid for us to run air conditioners. So we all turned off our air conditioners. And then people started saying, well, how am I supposed to charge my electric car if I can't turn on my air conditioner? So by 2035, I believe there's you know an ordinance that we all have to get, you know, all new cars will be electric. How do we sustain that with our existing grid? What would you like to see change? Because we do have some time, not much time, but there obviously has to be some some improvements. Yeah. So if the question is um, by 20, I think 2045, we need to have well, 2035 in California, Governor Newsom has an executive order saying no more passenger vehicles from gasoline. So uh, new passenger cars being sold that year will have to be um, non-fossil -fuel, fuel. They could be hydrogen, they could be uh, battery okay. powered, right? But it will start, uh, you know, by then, you know, the, the fleet in California will still have a lot of gas vehicles, right? But uh -huh. the new cars sold, the incremental pieces will be um, will be uh, either battery or hydrogen. So I think it's, it's not going to be that 2035, suddenly the whole grid needs just right. electric. It will still be a decade long transition ahead. And in 2045, uh, Jerry Brown had signed into law SB 100, which required 100% of our grid's electricity supply to be uh, clean, non-carbon non, non polluting. Perfect. And so that sort of matchup, it, it's just a, it's, it's a long transition. I wish actually it would happen more quickly, but I do think uh, the fact that uh, the, our political leaders have telegraphed such a long time frame. they wanna give industry the chance to make sure all that capacity is there. And I think that we can do it. The cost of solar energy is in a decade, as you've seen, has dropped so dramatically that we, we can embrace this and those policy actions, I think, can press us forward. I, I think we'll probably actually get there quicker than those I days. Hope so. I really hope so. Oh, so, oh, so Keith, it's uh, your turn in the hot seat now with the discussion on hydrogen. Whoa. And a lot of people don't understand hydrogen. They don't. They, so one of the questions that I've gotten repeatedly is hydrogen's dirty. And, you know, it's from fossil fuels. And the people that I've spoken to and interviewed in the past, it's actually been what's called green hydrogen. And the hydrogen is made from renewable energy, solar, wind. They just split that atom, you know, split apart the water molecule, pull off the H2. What do you have to say when people say it's dirty, it comes from methane? How are we progressing beyond this so we do become a carbon neutral, carbon negative energy source? You know, one of the first things I tell them that here in California and even around the globe, well, I, I should back up and say a lot of people, sometimes it's not just a question, it's just an accusation. Yes, that is true. And it's a rock or Molotov cocktail that's hurled at us. And and I'm often surprised a little bit by that, by the ones who make the accusation, because they oftentimes forget the word and several times. So it's important to remember, yeah, at the moment, a lot of hydrogen is made from natural gas. And we know it's being put on a renewable and zero carbon pathway here and around the globe. 
Yes. To date, we have at least 30 national hydrogen strategies globally. I hear there's maybe about 10 more in the works. All recognize what the end game is. And we know there are some policies at the moment. Um, you know, Wei Tai, you were talking about the, the mandates and really for government, and we increasingly talk in kind of the hydrogen and fuel cell communities that we need long-term predictable policies, not just the sticks, but also the carrots. Things like investment tax credits or other kinds of market mechanisms that really move a variety of decarbonizing pathways forward and really send a signal to industry to come here and invest. California has done some really great things in other areas that are environmentally friendly by sending this. We did it for wind and solar 20 years ago and look where we are now. I also wanna use the word and a couple more times. And on the kind of, let's just talk about the renewable side of hydrogen. There's a number of companies Bloomberg NEF, McKinsey and Company, Wood McKinsey that have all said we can get to low cost renewable hydrogen by 2030, even earlier. UC Irvine has even said earlier with the right policy foundations. Yep. And one of those, Wood McKinsey last year, and I know they've updated data and I can't remember where the heck it is, but in 2020, they said, here's the installed capacity of electrolyzers globally. And electrolyzing water, splitting water using wind or solar power, that's one way to make green or I should say renewable hydrogen. But that said, they said, here's the installed capacity. Now the planned capacity is 31 times that. Just to give you a sense of, and that's just happened over the last several years of kind of this sort of movement that a lot of people didn't see coming because last year we saw that real acceleration. A lot of people had hit the snooze button five to 10 years ago and they were caught off guard. And if you also kind of then add into that, uh, McKinsey and Company on behalf of the Hydrogen Council talks about, I think to date in the last couple of years, $500 billion worth of hydrogen projects globally. Ooh, so that's a big Right. It's not, there's not a disagreement about getting to zero carbon and renewable hydrogen. The argument is about how and when and how fast. That is where the, 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 the details are happening. Sadly, we're still mired in this sort of hydrogen equals natural gas sort of um, kind of um, these statements. And yet there's not in some cases, a recognition of what's actually happening or has been happening for the last five to 10 years to get us to this point. So I'm, um, there's a lot of really interesting and good indicators. And, and just like we were talking about energy storage, I mean, there's a lot of different tools in the decarbonization toolbox that are gonna become really interesting over the next 10 to 20 years. Like for energy storage, whether it's in home or in larger applications. I mean, hydrogen won't be used for home energy storage, doesn't make sense. But when we're talking about storage in terms of gigawatts and terawatts and petawatts of power, you're gonna see a variety of tools and hydrogen will definitely be one of them. We so, need a variety of tools. No, I, I firmly agree well, that we need you know, energy diversification. We need sources from multiple places. Relying only on one technology, one resource will only work for the short term. And that's just my opinion. Go ahead. Yeah, maybe I could just add on to Keith's comment about 
And I'll add another and going back to uh, Wendy, you said you've already talked about green hydrogen, but for the purposes of uh, just bringing that conversation into today's talk, um, when I said that we're, uh, we're pressing in California to have um, all um, clean energy by 2045, you know, there are times on the grid when there's just, there's actually too much solar energy or too much wind energy. And yeah. I, that's, you know, when I'm driving in some parts of the Central Valley and I see all the wind turbines there and, and sometimes they're not even moving, right? You go, hey, I wonder why those things are moving. And the answer is that there's too much electricity on the grid now. And so we don't want it to move because every time you make electrons, they got to go somewhere and be used. And so um, when there's too much, they, they call it a curtailment. They curtail your solar panels. And so they sit there idle. All these assets sit there idle. But what if we could let them run and let them create hydrogen in those time periods, right? Because I think Keith mentioned that one process, while uh, methane reformation is the today's process of using methane gas to make hydrogen, there is a process called electrolysis, which uses electricity to create hydrogen. And so all that, uh, that potential excess electricity on the grid uh, at like solar noon uh, are uh, theoretical opportunities to be making a different fuel rather than being idle. And so um, that's what I'm excited about. That's what the renewable industry is excited about is to try to unleash some of those uh, assets during those otherwise uh, curtailed times and do something productive with it. How we do it, like Keith said, you know, there's a big question of how as opposed to if and how much it's going to cost and so on. But that's uh, sort of the excitement about innovation is that somehow we're going to focus on it. And if there are policy incentives, tax credits and so forth to innovate in that area, then we can accelerate our speed towards having grid level storage uh, from a combination of renewables and hydrogen produced in a green fashion, electrolysis. Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up. That is so important because when I first started studying sustainability um, and started asking my myriad of questions like a six-year-old, one of the things I learned was with that excess energy is it couldn't be stored properly. So we either paid Arizona or Nevada to take our energy. Oh, yeah. off. So we're giving another state money to take our energy. It's kind of like, what are we doing? And then on the, you know, additionally, they would just zap it in the ground and dump it. So when I interviewed this guys at SoCal Gas back in February, I believe, they're using that excess energy, as you brought up, for their electrolysis, for the hydrogen, which is brilliant. I mean, that is what we should be doing. We shouldn't be getting rid of our excess energy and we shouldn't be paying another state to take it off our hands. We should be saying, hey, let's find a use for this. And that's, we need to accelerate and, and build on that. So I'm so, so glad you brought that up because most people are unaware of that. Keith, did you have something to add in? I rudely interrupted you. No, just to kind of be, even build on that, you're beginning to see not just SoCal Gas, but all the natural gas companies globally kind of really start working on how do you decarbonize those pipelines? Do they ultimately become really just a hydrogen pipeline? Hmm. Which yeah. may be, which is an interesting way of, well, it becomes a kind of a form of storage, a means of transport. And there are efforts you're beginning to see in Britain, kind of these sort of hydrogen homes, kind of beginning yeah. to look at how do you convert homes to hydrogen? I mean, ultimately I think there's a lot of things that are being tried and it's a matter of what works, yes. what works in certain situations, what works in certain areas, what makes sense. Um, you know, cause it's like to kind of draw it back into kind of the car frame, 
you know, I get people at public events who are like, which is better, a fuel cell car or a battery electric car? And I'm like, I don't know, it depends. Depends what yeah. you want. They're all great cars. Anybody driving electric drive and you hit that mode, you know, you hit the gas or I don't know what you say for a battery electric car, but I'll just say hit the gas. You know, <laughs> it's got kick. These cars yeah. are, you know, and especially going uphill. There is nothing more fun than accelerating in a electric drive vehicle on a hill. And, but, you know, I kind of tell them it depends. It, you know, and even as we look at kind of in other, in fleets and larger categories, it depends. What's the business case? What's the operational case? You know, um, you know, a lot of times the efficiency argument is used against fuel cell electric vehicles and even hydrogen. You know, and it's trying to explain them like it's sometimes it, efficiency makes sense in certain occasions. Yes. And sometimes it's about what works because you can you talk efficiency. <laughs> you can talk efficiency till you're blue in the face, but that doesn't always get you everything you want. I mean, if it's really about efficiency, it's we're going to bikes. We're getting rid of cars. We're only going to focus on wind, not solar. And it's just, you know, I, I, I often get pulled into these arguments unwillingly because our membership supports both vehicle pathways. Our at least 50% of our members work on both. And it's really disheartening to kind of get pulled into them. And it's like, oh, God, not again. So was I adorably grumpy with that sort of response? Thank you. Thank this you. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's really disconcerting sometimes. And so, but I think, for the future, there's some really interesting opportunities and especially where hydrogen and fuel cells can benefit batteries and whatnot. I mean, hell, on fuel cell electric vehicles, you have batteries, yes. you know, they, <laughs> but there's some interesting things going down the road um, that probably you want to, we could talk about another time, but what I call the holy grails, at least on our pathway, one of which is um, like artificial photosynthesis. You know, Wendy, you might want to talk to the folks at the Resnick Center at Caltech. I think they have, if you, to take a tour of their facility, which I have twice, blew my mind, um, just kind of the work that they're doing. Now, granted, on in terms of technology readiness levels, um, you know, a scale from one to nine, from idea to full commercialization, they're probably still on level four or five. They're still in the early research phases, but there's some interesting stuff out there on all the decarbonization pathways that we probably won't see for at least another 10, maybe even 20 years, but absolutely fascinating work. And that again, energy diversification, we need choices, we need options. Yeah, it, It's really that simple because we're all getting to the same goal, but if we're quibbling with each other, we're, it's not gonna make sense. We need to work together and understand each other, which is why I adore both of you guys, because you're very intelligent, you're experts in your industry, but you're also very open to conversation without yelling or screaming or, you know, the emails that I get where people yell at me is, I kind of thought, am I doing something wrong? I'm just trying to communicate and educate well, people. Welcome. Welcome to my world. Yeah. <laughs> I, oh, tell you, I don't know if you get much of that, but. Well, we, oh. we could do some yelling in the last 20 minutes. Oh, a, a good verbal fist fight, Wei Tai. Oh, oh my yeah. God. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, bring it on. I was about to say that. <laughs> well, oh, uh, I got my, and I got my hydrogen symbol H2. Oh, there you go. There you go. Cool. There you go. We got to have a nice. Oh, yeah. Wendy, you should not have invited us on on for this. this Are you kidding? Segment. I'm having you guys back. 
Well, I, I had a comment on, uh, let me add on a little bit on the social justice piece of, of solar, because I, I might have missed out on that. And I did want to say one of the things that really warms my heart about uh, solar energy is the fact that we call it distributed energy, and that as opposed to a centralized energy, it's a path where uh, I put 15 solar panels on my own roof about 10 years ago. And I did pay, um, uh, maybe back then it was $20,000 to put it there, but today it would be like less than $8,000 to put it on there. But it basically uh, at the time uh, helped to defray about 80% of my electricity bill. So I actually was generating my own electricity on my own home and I wasn't paying you know, the local utility to, um, to sell me electricity. So I empowered myself. It was, it's funny that we call this power, right? Energy and power that I had put power on my roof and I had there, I own my own power. And uh, one wonderful thing about solar energy is that everybody who does put power on their roof is redistributing power away from central organizations into themselves and uh, into their own communities. Uh, and that the, the creation of jobs of putting them up there in the first place is a way that I think is a form of, of, of environmental justice and social justice Absolutely. and redistribution. Because right now we rely on fossil fuels. I, I sort of mentioned earlier in my talk from the Middle East, right? Uh, certain countries in South America. So they, they just happen to be sitting on massive amounts of black gold, right? Oil. and and by selling it all over the world, they're having all the, the money going to one central place and coming yes. out of everybody's pockets. But what if we could, you know, have the people use a very abundant source of um, like silicon or, or solar and put it on their own house, buy it, own it themselves, then they've become their energy owner. And I think that that is a very deep uh, cause of justice worldwide, you know, for, for okay. us to free uh, all countries in the world can free themselves from from reliance on other people because everybody gets access to the sun, right? And so uh, we all get our fair share of the sun's access and um, it is a way for us to distribute power, literally, and equity uh, down into the grassroots. So I, I, so far solar energy is something only like three to 5% of the world's electricity source. There, there's a long way for us to go. I did um, not know that. Yep, I it's it was, just. I thought it was much more than that. Globally, it's still in the single digits. Nice. In California, we're way up there in in right. double digits, but we're and in California, by the way, fifty percent of all solar panels sold in America are installed in California. So where the three of us live in California, we, we we might see a lot more that we do see a lot more of them than anywhere else in <laughs> the country or the world. And, but, and that's uh, right, but. Um, Anyways, I think the, the point I'm trying to make is that there's a, a long way to go in terms of improving the distribution of power and justice and equality. And um, so uh, I think speaking up in favor of solar and pressing our policymakers to adapt it is something, of course, the people who currently own the power structure, they don't want to, they're not keen on giving it up to the masses, right? right? I think they're right. growing more fond of it because they realize they're kind of got their backs against the wall. They're going to have to learn to adapt. <laughs> Let's hope so. Let's hope so. There, there should be a role for everybody, but um, I think we've got to speak up. And um, around the country, there, there are some places that don't have very friendly solar policies and that discourage individuals yeah. from getting on the grid. And it turns out, you know, California happened to be very open. Arnold Schwarzenegger had the dream of a million rooftops and 
we actually just hit that million rooftops last year. Wow. And so California is doing well, and we hope other states and countries around the world uh, will will also do the same thing. Could not I agree think, more. Uh, Keith, I'll let you close out. I think California really has developed a number of models kind of in this sort of green space, if you will, and we kind of export it. And, and I think especially for distributed energy demo or democratizing power, I mean, in a way, you know, um, but I think ultimately we will develop models um, for communities, for individuals and regions that I think will serve as models for others. I mean, we're looking at it with fuel cell electric vehicles, even with battery electric vehicles, we are visited yeah. on a daily basis from people from around the world. Well, they used to visit us at the moment, not really in person. We'll get back there. We're getting back there. So, well, yeah. Thank you guys both. This has been extremely educational, very helpful. I love the fact that you guys both have your pros and cons. You know that there are benefits to both. There are distractions to both. We all have hurdles we have to get over. Yeah. We're going to get there and we're only going to get there together. So thank you both. This has been fantastic. Hopefully we can do this again in a little while, see how developments are going, how policy moves forward and uh, see what people have to say. So thank you very much. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you, Keith. It's been a pleasure. Likewise, both of you.